Good morning, everyone. Um, my name's Esther, and I've been coming here for quite a while. Um, but I'm not part of the leadership team, which is what people always say when they introduce themselves. So you've got just me this morning. We're continuing our series called A Life Less Ordinary from F Philippians. And actually, Dave has not done me a favor because he's given me Philippians chapter 2. And then he's told you all that this is one of the most profound and important passages from the Bible and that he absolutely loves it. So thanks, Dave, for that. And thanks for not being here this morning to support me. Anyway, Philippians chapter 2, A Life Less Ordinary. For me, this, um, this chapter can be summed up in verse 15, where it says, You will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And that can also be translated as you hold out the word of life. So in chapter 1 of Philippians, Paul's been encouraging the church to share the gospel, to um, tell the community around them the good news, to invite people to share in the gospel of Jesus. And in chapter 2, he then moves on and encourages the community of believers to be a visual living portrait of that gospel. He said their lives as a community is to shine like stars in the sky as they hold out the gospel to people. So our lives as a community of believers church is meant to represent the gospel to those that we are sharing it with. Now you might think, how does that work? Is it that we are a community where there's power and there's miracles? Is it a community where the worship is just outstanding? Is it a community where you know, God is very, very present? Well, let's read the passage and find out how we're going to shine like stars. So this is chapter 2, verses 1 to 18. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but to each, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, 
children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. So how are we to be that community that shines in, well, you could say our generation is crooked and warped as well as it was in, in Paul's day and in most generations since then. Well, it's a picture of a servant. It's a picture of humility. It's a picture of unity, of thinking of others first, of serving. It's a picture of sacrifice. Now, I don't know how good we are at serving others. Yesterday was the wedding of Tom and Heather. And the church comes together in events like that and serves brilliantly. You know, the church community was there putting out chairs, serving the food, tidying up, making the cake. Thank you. Uh, just had to put, the, put that in there. But it was. It was an act of service of the church. And those there who were not from the church, I can almost guarantee would have gone, wow, this is what the church does. The church serves really well. The church is giving um, to Tom and Heather and serving them on their big day. But when it comes to the day-to-day -day life of church, it gets a bit harder. We get a bit emptier. We find it a bit harder to continue to think of others first, to continue to serve, to continue to love others. I started thinking about this talk in the last week of the summer holidays, and our house was not a place of unity and love. I had two children about to go back to school, about to start school at the same, uh, for the first time, and they were at each other the whole week. There was no capacity to put the other person first. The other person goes near them and they get whacked or screamed at. I had Fran back at work for the first week, back at work, slightly stressed, slightly not sleeping properly, probably not at her best. I just wanted to read a theology book and think about this talk and get it right, and I just wanted five minutes' peace. And I thought, gosh, if I can't do it in my own family life, how do we do it in church life? And then came that dreaded email. You know the one that you get? You are on Children's Church this Sunday. <laughs> my goodness, could I do that without a grumble? Without a, can't I just sit in church and listen to a sermon? And I think we all have days like that, don't we? We all have times like that, when serving feels too much. I had a little look at the reasons why people leave churches. And I think number seven was too much being asked of them. You know, too much demand on their time, too much volunteering to be done. And it's hard. It's hard because when we try and live giving ourselves to others, we can feel empty and our self rises up and goes, what about me? I need some attention. I need some quiet time. I need some love. And actually our picture when we read Philippians 2 can look a bit more like this. It's hard. It's, it even feels impossible. I feel a failure. I'm meant to be this person that's loving and serving and giving my life for others without grumbling 
and even in joy. I love that picture because that's what I feel like sometimes. So what do we do? We can do it in the moments, in the big events. What do we do in the daily grind of our lives that helps us to be that community that shines? Well, what Paul says is we look to Jesus. And it's interesting that he doesn't then go on to describe how Jesus served others. He doesn't go on to describe the events of Jesus' life. He goes on with this beautiful hymn that talks about who Jesus was. And this is the the passage that Dave was referring to when he said this is the heart of Paul. This is the heart of the gospel. It's been called Paul's master story. And I find it really interesting that when Paul comes to describe who Jesus is, he turns from words to worship. It's a hymn. It's not theology. And that's because when we think about who Jesus is and try and get our heads around it, it it feels almost impossible. You can study this, you can look at this, you can read big books about it, and we still struggle to get our heads and minds, heads and minds, hearts and minds, around who Jesus actually was. But when we come to worship, we can express something of a mystery. So first of all, Paul in this hymn of praise, talks about Jesus being God. Who, being in the very nature God, he had equality with God. He is to be exalted in the highest place. He's given the name that is above every other name. And at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and acknowledge that he is Lord. His hymn begins and ends with a declaration of Jesus' divinity. Now, when we think about God, it's really hard to describe God because God is not us. God is not a created being. God is completely other, and us as mere humans cannot get our minds around him. So we say things like, God is other. God is not created. God is not bound by time or physical dimensions. God is powerful. He's uncontainable. He's not changing. He's all-knowing. He's invisible. How do we get our heads around Jesus then being God? Well, here we get into some quite complex theology. This is what Paul says. Jesus, who being the very nature God, did not consider equality of God something to be used to his own advantage. But rather, he made himself nothing. Or that can also be translated, he emptied himself by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. Now, some theologians, can't say that, some theologians would say, That in this, Paul is saying that Jesus, when he came to earth, stopped being divine. He lost some of his divinity. He gave it up. Now, this might be a beautiful picture of a great sacrifice. But it then leaves us with many other questions. What happens to the Trinity, the, the Godhead of three in one, if one of them ceases to be God? 
What happens to salvation if Jesus wasn't actually God at the time that he died? How does Jesus reveal God to us if he loses some of his divinity? So there's another way of interpreting it. And actually, in the Greek, that word, who being the very nature God, can be read because he was in the very nature God. And this view says that Jesus didn't lose his divinity coming to earth, but he put off the external glories that are rightfully his, those things that are his, the glory that belongs to him, but is not who he is. And somehow, in coming to earth, he becomes more of what God is, if that makes sense. By becoming less, he becomes more and shows us more of who God is. We have a self-giving, emptying, giving God. A God who in becoming weak and becoming small and having a relationship with the creatures he's created somehow shows us something of himself that's more important than being all-powerful and all-present. N.T. Wright puts it like this, which is quite helpful. Let's clear one misunderstanding out of the way, in case it still confuses anybody. In verse 7, Paul says that Jesus emptied himself. People sometimes thought that this meant that Jesus, having been divine up to that point, somehow stopped being divine when he became human. And then he went back to being divine again. This is, in fact, completely untrue to what Paul has in mind. The point of verse 6 is that Jesus was indeed already equal with God. Somehow, Paul is saying that Jesus already existed even before he became a human being. But the decision to become human and to go all the way along the road of obedience, obedience to the divine plan of salvation, yes, all the way to the cross, this decision was not a decision to stop being divine. It was a decision about what it really meant to be divine. And if we think back to the most basic thing we say about God, God is love. The most essential thing about God is that he is a relational being. And we know that he has relationship within the trinity of the Godhead. But there's also something about God that needed to create the world and needed to become part of that creation. Because that's who God is. He's love. And for God, the coming down to earth as Jesus, the becoming small, becoming bound by time, actually is more. A very famous theologian, Maltman, said this, God is nowhere more divine than when he becomes a man. And what happens to the other attributes of the word of God when he becomes a man? Well, that's for a different sermon. Fortunately, I can't fit that in now. But if you're interested, read about it because it's fascinating. Okay, so the next part of the hymn talks about Jesus being a human. He made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. Now we can go, how can God be divine and human? There's lots of complex ways to describe how that happens. But I like this very simple description by the theologian um, Ian McFarland. He says... Who was Jesus? 
Jesus was 100% the divine word of God. What was Jesus? He was totally human. What we see of Jesus in the Gospels, what people saw when they walked around on the earth, was a human being. And in becoming human, Jesus shows us what we are meant to be. So Jesus came at a time when the Roman emperors sought to have the glory of being a God, sought to be divine, you know, got, declared themselves to be God and claimed the glory. But Jesus came instead as a servant. You know, I think we've been extremely, extremely blessed in this country to have a queen that has ruled as a servant. And tomorrow as we remember her, we remember someone who showed us something of Jesus in the way that she lived. But even she couldn't do it totally. You know, she still had to live being given the glory. Whereas Jesus rejected that completely. Being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And Jesus' humanity shows us that to be human, less is also more. To be fully human and most fully alive is to serve others. That's what we're made for. But there's also something about looking at Jesus' life as a human. And as you read the Gospels, you see time after time, he's reliant on the Spirit. The Gospel stories of Jesus talk about him being filled with the Spirit, led by the Spirit, motivated by the Spirit, strengthened by the Spirit. He asks his Father for the Spirit. He's comforted by the Spirit. Jesus shows us that actually as human beings we need the Spirit in order to do what we're called to do. And finally, in Paul's hymn of praise, it's a hymn to the one. It's not a hymn that is talking about these two different people, God the divine and God the human. It is about the unity of Jesus. It's one person. And as the church in the early days of the um, church worked out what they were going to say about who Jesus was, they came up with this very important definition in 451 AD, um, which is known as a Chalcedon definition that talks about Jesus. It says, Following the Holy Fathers, we all with one accord teach men to acknowledge one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, at once completing Godhead and completing manhead, truly God and truly man, recognized in two natures, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation, the distinction of natures being in no way annulled by the union, but rather the characteristics of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person and subsistence, not as parted or separated into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten God, the Word, Lord Jesus Christ. So in Jesus, the divinity of the divine doesn't need to make space for the human. Rather, the divine fills the human nature in order for it to become what it is meant to be, united with the divine. Okay, that's enough theology. 
What does this mean for us? Why does Paul put this passage right in the middle of his speaking about what the church is meant to be, how the church is meant to serve and love one another and be that shining light to the world? Well, first of all, we talked about the divine in Jesus and how actually the basis of that is that God is loved. And if God is loved, then we are the beloved. Dave spoke last week about love being an action. But actually, love is more than an action. You know, I grew up in the church, and I've had that drummed into me time and time again. Love is an action. It's not a feeling. Love is an action. You go out and show people love. It's not about what you feel. But actually, God's been speaking to me recently about love being a feeling, a really deeply profound feeling that he has for us. And if we are struggling to serve, if we're struggling to love other people, then coming back to that place of being God's beloved is the only place to start being able to do it again. We are totally and fully loved by God. When talking about God being loved, we're also made in the image of God. God is a person who has to love others. And we in his image are made to love others. That doesn't mean that we all do it in the same way. We all do it as a being that he, he has created us to be. And when we do, we become more fully and freely ourselves. Those of you who know a bit of my story know that I, along with Fran, adopted two children recently. And actually in doing so, it's been a really, really hard thing to do. But one of the reasons I wanted to adopt was that I wanted to be able to love another, to not have a life that's centered around me. And not having a life centered around me, but centered around these two little things, is really, really hard. But I'd say that in becoming mum, I've become more truly myself, however difficult it is. And whatever gifts and talents God's given you, when you use them for others, you become more fully yourself, whether that's painting pictures or uh, serving others in your workplace or whatever it is God's made you to do. You do it for others, you become more fully yourself. And of course, we don't do it on our own. We do it, as Jesus did it, reliant on the Spirit of God. The other night, when I got woken up in the night, my children bang on the wall to wake me up. And bang, 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 I go in. I've had a nightmare. I've had a bad dream. You know, all I wanted to do was to go back to my bed. And I could have done it. I could have gone there, there, out to the K and gone back to bed. But actually, I just knew that I had to stay until he went back to sleep. And I was standing there going, I can't do this. I can't do this. I can't do this. I want to be asleep. And then I went, Spirit, help me to stay. Help me to remain. Help me to just to stay and be the face of love to my little boy in this moment. And he did help me. The Spirit enables us to serve and love others when we run out. And finally... In Jesus, we see a unity of the divine and the human. And actually, the Bible talks about that is what Jesus does for us as well. In the Western church, we'll very, very um, most commonly speak about salvation and going to heaven. And that is the emphasis of you know, our relationship with Jesus, that being saved is the most important thing. 
but in other parts of the church, the Eastern Church in particular, they'd say the, the aim, the reason we get to know Jesus is becoming one with him. And the Bible speaks of the unity of us and Christ. And just like that unity in Jesus of the divine and the human is a mystery that we can't get our heads around, the union of Christ in me and me in Christ is something that we cannot, as humans, get our heads around. We can only experience. But Christ in me, as Paul said, is the hope of glory. So, just in conclusion, verse 1 of the passage that we have read, Paul refers to the things that help us to be those who serve and love. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, it is him and you that do this together. If you have any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then you as a church can be that light that shines in the world and holds out the gospel.